to episode 133 of Real Life Ghost Stories. How you do? To kick things off this week, we need to thank our newest Patreon subscribers. We would like to thank Jade Beckett. Professor Chucky Egg Struthers Frost. Audrey Nash. Mylin Martin. Kate Dawn Crutchley Helming. Beth Rogers. Gappy Goth. Nick Ad. Rena Holtzman. Strange Pagan. Katia Alvarado. Alice Blue Moon. Jasmine Gonzalez. Jill Ottaviano. Tabor. Brittany Brew. Jules Dalberg. Fanny Garcia. Thank you so much for being our Patreon subscribers. We love you. We appreciate you every damn day. I apologise if any of your names were pronounced wrong. They were quite tricky this time round. And uh, we did practice, but we don't always... <laughs> We don't always get the right pronunciation. So our film review this week, our film review was, is Found Footage 3D. Found Footage 3D has 5.4 out of 10 on IMDb and 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. (laughs) Would you like a synopsis? Yes, please. A group of filmmakers set out to make a horror film, but things take a left turn when the entity from their movie escapes into the behind the scenes footage. Before we start this film review, I just want to say that, yes, this film is actually called Found Footage 3D. That is the name they settled on. They decided they were going to make a film and they decided to genuinely call it Found Footage 3D. So that's that's the real name of the movie. Okay, what were your thoughts on this film? I think it's worth noting off the bat that I'm not likely to be favourable in my review of a movie that is a found footage film. I've been quite vocal about the fact that I don't enjoy them and I've seen a handful of films that I've mildly liked in this genre and that is it. So with that in mind, I have to say I'm not a big fan of this film either. I personally think they had a good idea that was poorly executed. How many times have we said that about a film? I also feel they were just trying to be too clever. So it's a found it's a movie about a movie crew making a found footage movie that then becomes the movie itself which sounds crazy and it it just didn't work i think i think they were just trying to be too smart we've had haven't we had that before though not with a found footage movie but with like people making a horror film and then the horror starts in real life i'm pretty sure we've had films a film like that before and i can see it but i can't remember the name of it somebody will chip in the grave encounters no no but also that so it does work there are, there are times when it does work, but this was not one of them. And I love a found footage film. I, I like I really like Blair Witch, Paranormal Activity, the kind of earlier ones. I love films like Cloverfield. Like I, I, I enjoy the genre, but this was not it. This was not good. And I thought when I was watching it, I thought, is this satirical? Like, are they trying to make jokes of the tropes that are in found footage films that we see all the time and I did think they were for ages and then after I watched after the film was over and I really thought about it I thought actually I think you were right I think they were just trying to be really clever and it didn't come across very well there are undoubted positives about the film that said though I think considering it probably cost them next to nothing to make the acting was actually fairly decent throughout apart from one character, but he spent most of the time behind the camera, so that was okay. And, you know, they did a relatively good job of doing the special effects of the entity, which, you know, when it's on a budget, that's that's a positive thing. The last 15 minutes were also entertaining, 
my problem was the rest of the film, which was about an hour and a half long, really wasn't. No, it wasn't. And it was that hour and a half was a series of weird, isolated incidences that didn't really connect and didn't build tension. And then we literally said when it got to the last 15 minutes, you were like, oh, my God, there's only 15 minutes left. Like something has to happen because nothing has happened so far. It's a very it was a very strange film. And I feel very conflicted about the things they chose to portray and how they chose to portray them. Because you have the the base characters. I think there was like five of them, was there? Mm. And they were really defined characters, so much so that they almost became caricatures of the characters that we see in horror films. And there was obviously the guy that you were meant to hate. And he did a good job of being fucking despicable. <laughs> so I, I even said to Dan in the, in the middle of it, I can't fucking wait to see what his comeuppance is. Because he was just a terrible character. And you had like the nerdy guy that was behind the camera who was a terrible actor, but it didn't really matter because you didn't see him that much like outside of being behind the camera. And I agree, their their CGI entity was very cleverly done because they just made it as subtle as they could, but it was effective. But I just, I don't know. Maybe it was just trying to be too clever. I don't know. It was nice that they got the cameo, the, the uh, website writer, the reviewer in in the movie like that is actually him playing himself so that was quite cool to see but again i just feel it's another part of them trying to be clever like oh let's have the reviewer in the movie reviewing the movie being made but he's actually in the movie yeah i don't know i wasn't feeling it to be very serious for a second there was a scene in this movie that really tainted the rest of the movie for me and i struggled to get past it after it had been done so I don't, it just, there was a scene where they tried to portray a rape fetish or a rape fantasy, but in a way that the characters, the majority of the characters thought it was real. And it was very, I thought it was just very poorly executed. It didn't fit in with the rest of the story. It wasn't explained either before or afterwards. It was just thrown in as this weird horror trope, which was unnecessary. It was controversialist for the sake of it. And I actually found it incredibly uncomfortable and not in a standard, oh, this is gory horror, uncomfortable. I I really struggled with it. And I thought, I I said to, to Dan while we were watching, this would this scene, I think, probably would be incredibly triggering for some people. And it was put in without any thought as to how it actually fit with the story. It just didn't make any sense. Like, it, it was very strange. And I think that was my turning point when I was like, oh, this isn't satire. You are actually trying to be really clever and cool and controversialist. And it's not working. And I, I feel uncomfortable with this. Uh, so, yeah, that really put a damper on it for me. There was one of the... On a slightly lighter note, there was one of the better B-movie continuity errors that I've seen for a while in this movie, <laughs> in that the the main character has a very vicious uh, attack on, a, on a, one of her arms, whereby she's left with three big old cuts and she gets, has to get taken to hospital. And then she's wearing a bandage for the majority of the film, but then we, we cut to a scene and it's gone and there's no scarring on her arm. And this is for a good, you know, two minutes. And then... They change camera angle, come back to the scene, and she's got her arm bandaged. So they clearly just completely forgot about it. And instead of going back and reshooting it, they just carried on. And that was lovely. 
I just don't know how that happens. I no, no, I do know because I can understand that you you have an oversight or you mean to go back and do something, but you don't. But this that was glaring, like it was incredibly obvious. It wasn't just a, a, a you know a wristwatch and Ben Hur kind of continuity error. It was like, wow, this is really taken away from your movie. This continuity error. <laughs> it was. It was a. Uh, I don't know. It tried to be something and it wasn't, and I found it disappointing. So, what would you give this film out of five? I think I'll give it a two slash two and a half. I it was never going to be very high unless it was groundbreaking, and and as I'd heard absolutely nothing about it going into it, I figured it probably wasn't groundbreaking, and I was pretty right. I'm also going to give it a two. I didn't think it was terrible until it did that scene that I just found really bizarre, and uh, I just want to give a shout out to Colby who literally said on Facebook. I haven't seen this film, but I know they're not going to score it higher than a two and a half. And uh, you were right. That is very, very true. Also, the 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, that was definitely reviewed by the cast and crew and nobody else because I don't know who else has seen it. (laughs) Which brings us to our story this week. Our story this week is not a found footage horror film about a smoky entity that scratches your arms. But there are pictures to go along with this episode, which will be on Facebook and Instagram. Presumably in 3D. Absolutely in 3D. If you don't have any 3D glasses, it's going to be lost on you. So we live in Canterbury, as people know, and we have talked a lot about Canterbury and Canterbury's various ghost stories and spooky entities that knock around, particularly the milkman that Dan sees on the high street, allegedly. It's a real person. That nobody else has seen before. Canterbury is super old. Right, and that's just the mild way of putting it. So there are so many stories that go with a lot of the buildings and the most haunted street in Canterbury is said to be St. Margaret's Street. And we're going to tell a story that I have briefly mentioned before a couple of times on the podcast, but today we're going to delve right into it. And my information for this week's episode comes from a book called Haunted Canterbury by John Hipsley, who also does the Canterbury Ghost Tours. So if you're ever in Canterbury, do go on the ghost tour. It's very fun. Good value, very fun. This isn't an ad. John doesn't know we're doing this episode, so uh, yeah, you ready? Nope. The area of Canterbury has been inhabited since prehistoric times and was the first recorded primary settlement of the Celtic Cantiaki tribe. For centuries, there were various raids, power struggles, epidemics and power shifts until eventually in 1170, after the murder of Thomas Beckett, Canterbury became one of the most notable towns in Europe and people flocked there on pilgrimages. With the city being so steeped in centuries of history, it is inevitable that there would be some strange stories that reside on the winding streets. And where better to start than the most haunted street in Canterbury, St. Margaret's Street. The beautiful thing about Canterbury is that many of the buildings have had multiple lives. Strict conservation laws mean that the buildings have to maintain their original features, so many of the shops and pubs look like you're stepping back in time. But it also makes renovations a nightmare. In the early 2000s, workmen began renovations on number 34 St. Margaret Street, and it was trying, to say the least. Number 34 was a three-storey building with lots of character, which is a diplomatic way of saying that it was a nightmare. The building was being converted into a tea room and lots of the wooden panelling had to be repaired and replaced but up to standard that preserved the original integrity of the beams. Josh was working as an apprentice builder with the team and this new job was presenting challenges for him 
It was a good learning experience, but he wasn't at all prepared for how tough this one would be. It was a slog, and the team put in hard days, not to mention the fact that as the apprentice, Josh was the butt of everyone's jokes. It was a long-held tradition that the apprentice would do the worst jobs and have to endure a lot of gentle ribbing from the team. Almost like an initiation phase, but the jokes in number 34 were starting to get a bit weird, and Josh was seriously reconsidering his role within the team. It started as soon as the job did, and initially it was fine. One of his key jobs was keeping the site as dust-free as possible, so he was forever running around with a brush and a dustpan. But every time he put the brush to one side, it would disappear. Every time. He would lean it against the wall and turn away for a second, and when he would turn back, it would be gone. The first time it happened, he spent an age searching for it and questioning his own sanity. But now he knew exactly where it would be. It would be in the room on the second floor, propped up next to the fireplace. It became almost routine and he wondered how long the lads would keep it up for. He had decided not to say it to anyone and maybe they would get bored of the joke if he wasn't reacting. Today had been no different. And yet again, Josh was trudging up the stairs to retrieve his sweeping brush. He was lost in thought when he went into the room to find it in its usual spot propped against the fireplace. Bangs and knocks are normal on a building site. But something about the noises that Josh heard made him stop in his tracks. He heard the sound of footsteps thundering up the stairs behind him. The stairs were narrow, wooden and winding and running up them was virtually impossible, especially for full-grown men. But these footsteps didn't sound like men. They were light and quick. They were the footsteps of children, and the footsteps were coming towards the room that Josh was now standing in. The footsteps thundered into the room and seemed to disappear straight through the cupboard door next to him and then silence. Josh realised that he had been holding his breath, and he let the air escape his lungs. The air billowed out in front of him like smoke, because the room had gone ice cold. Josh was in a predicament. He knew what had just happened to him, and it was making him question his tools being moved, but he wasn't ready to tell anyone, because he couldn't face the ridicule. In his mind, he knew that he had heard children running up those stairs. He heard their little footsteps on the wooden floor in the room he was standing in. He felt the vibrations of the floorboards as they thundered past him and into the cupboard. But he didn't know how to explain it. And so he told no one. After a few weeks, Josh forgot about the strange incident. But he always felt goosebumps when he went into that second floor room. Something felt off, but he had convinced himself that what he had heard and felt was all part of his imagination. The building was old and rickety and probably made lots of strange noises, and working on a building site only adds to that. It was only when everyone experienced something similar that Josh eventually told his story. The builders were working on a skeleton crew, and doing the last odds and ends of work before they finished the job completely. 
They had gathered in the first floor and were sitting on various makeshift seats, eating their lunches. It was Josh that heard it first. That same sound of footsteps thundering up the stairs. He stopped chewing and concentrated on it, and then noticed that the conversation in the room had hushed. Everyone was listening to the footsteps. They ran up the stairs and into the room above them. But this time they were accompanied by the unmistakable squeals and giggles of children. Josh looked at the foreman and said, Should somebody go and check? The foreman, still staring at the ceiling and listening, shook his head slightly. There's no point. There's nothing up there. Josh hadn't been the only one experiencing strange things in the building. But he was the only one who didn't know the true horror of what had been found there. In 1991, there had been rumours that number 34 was haunted. But John, a local man, wasn't as easily swayed by this legend. He decided the only way to know for sure was to spend the night there. He knew the stories, but he also knew that in a city as old as Canterbury, stories have a tendency to become much more elaborate by the generation. John knew the stories of what had happened there, and with much persuasion he roped a friend into spending the night. He wanted to know once and for all whether number 34 was haunted, or whether it was just a good story. Armed with candles and sleeping bags, the men entered the building and opted to station themselves in different rooms on different floors to cover as much ground as they could in the space of time that they had. In the quiet darkness of the night, John sat with his back pressed against the cold wall and watched his candle glow in the darkness. The room suddenly felt icy cold and he pulled his sleeping bag closer around him. The candle flickered as though someone had just run past it, and then John heard something. It was distant at first. Was it the wind? Or was it a whispering? He strained in the darkness trying to make sense of what he was hearing. It was coming closer, and it definitely was not the wind. It was a chant like some sort of nursery rhyme being repeated over and over again. At first he couldn't make out any of the words, but eventually it was loud enough for him to hear. And to this day, John has never forgotten those words. All night candles bred in Brickter, candle lickter for all nighter. All night candles bred in Brickter, At the time, John didn't know exactly what they meant, but he would later find out. As he listened, the words slowly faded until he was left with nothing, only the silence and the calm glow of his candle. And then he heard the scream from downstairs. He rushed to unzip himself from his sleeping bag and fled downstairs thinking that his friend had been grievously injured. He hadn't. He had just also heard the whispering chant and panicked. They fled the building, safely assured that the rumours were true. Later, with the horrific chant etched into his brain, John went on the hunt for an answer to what he had heard. He hadn't understood the language, but when he found it, he immediately knew what it was. 
The words that he had heard were a medieval song that was traditionally sung over children dying of the plague. It roughly translates as, Those children that see this light by their bed will not in the morning, for they will be with the Lord. So what actually happened in number 34? Probably a lot. The building was built on top of the remains of a Roman townhouse in around the 1400s and was inhabited by generations of the Newman family from that period right up until the 1960s. Sir Geoffrey Newman, the man who first built the house, was a sailor and he and his wife had 12 children. After the last of the Newman line left the house, it was converted into a Chinese restaurant by a man named Sung Lee. In 1986, the restaurant suffered a devastating fire, which resulted in heavy restoration being needed. In the attic, the mummified remains of three children were found and removed from the house for examination. Carbon dating placed their date of death to within 10 years of 1415 and concluded that the children had died of cholera. Each child was wrapped in a shroud and the shroud had been stitched through the nostril. This was an old nautical tradition. When the panelling was removed from the walls, commemorative inscriptions were found bearing the names, birth dates and death dates of all of the children who had died in this household. And finally, when the bricks were removed from around the fireplace, tucked away in little hessian bags, were the teeth and hair of children. Just two doors down in number 36, a similarly terrifying ordeal took place. In the early 2000s, a group of students were living in the upstairs flat of number 36, and after a night on the tiles, they somehow concluded that a Ouija board session was the best way to end the night. They made their own Ouija boards out of cardboard and used a glass as the planchette. As soon as they began, the glass began to move. Through a series of questions, they established that the spirit who was communicating with them was Abigail, and that Abigail had died in 1873 at the age of 27. They asked her where in the house she had died, and the response came, David knows. They all turned and looked at David, who had gone deathly pale. He hadn't wanted to say anything for fear of ridicule, but since they had moved into the house, he had felt a weird presence that he couldn't quite explain. Eventually, they ended the session and they all went their separate ways to their bedrooms. That night, David locked his door. He awoke a couple of hours later and felt as though something wasn't right. He lay in the darkness, listening to the sound of the city and trying to make sense of his feelings. And then he felt the heavy weight of someone climb onto his bed. He sat up in shock, thinking it was one of his housemates and fumbled around in the darkness only to realise that no one was there. He must have imagined it. He lay back down on his back and tried to steady his breathing. The earlier events of the night had obviously shaken him up a bit and he tried to calm himself down. And then he felt breath on his face. He snapped open his eyes only to see his own frightened face staring down at him. 
His brain couldn't make sense of what was happening and he lay still and staring at his own face hovering in the air above him. Slowly he realised that above him was a mirror, seemingly floating in mid-air. It was the mirror that was on the wall at the top of the stairs. His heart was thumping so loud he could hear it. Again, convinced it was a roommate, he glanced down to see if one of them, for some ungodly reason, was standing on his bed holding a mirror over him. No one was there. He raised himself up slowly, not daring to take his eyes off his own reflection, and manoeuvred his hand to the back of the mirror, desperate to feel a wire or some apparatus that would explain what was happening. But nothing. Slowly he worked up the courage to look behind the mirror, and a woman he had never seen before was staring back at him. She was young, but her face looked haggard and worn, and her eyes were full of hate. He screamed, and as he did so, the mirror dropped on top of him and shattered. David's roommates heard the screams and ran to his room, but the door was locked. Eventually, they managed to break the door down and found David panicked and bleeding, surrounded by the broken mirror. David was taken to hospital and had to have extensive treatment for wounds to his face and chest. In 1873, a man named Mr. Peterson, who was the landlord at the Crown Inn, had taken his life while in custody for the murder of his wife. Mr. Peterson had been a violent and despicable man and had made his wife's life a living hell. Eventually, the suffering became too much for her and she took her own life by using her husband's razor to slit her throat while simultaneously throwing herself off the balcony. The neighbours and the locals to the Crown Inn were well aware of Mr. Peterson's extreme violence towards his wife, and they reported him to the police. He was arrested for her murder. Her name was Abigail Peterson, and she died when she was 27 years old. I think as you alluded to at the start of the story, in a city that's as old as Canterbury, it's likely that numerous buildings have got a dark history i think what sets this story apart is the sort of activity that comes alongside it and the various different reports that seem to seem to back up historical evidence or the other way around historical evidence backs up the the reports it's the hauntings that prove that history happened (laughs) so that building number 34 is now tiny tim's tea room which i've spoken about a few times and tiny tim's is like you know advertises itself as the only tea room authentic tea room in canterbury right and you can go in and have your afternoon tea and whatever banging scones however they do not i will point out that they do not anywhere because i checked on their website or on their premises advertise this alleged haunting story So there's no, I don't believe there's any part of this that is like a marketing scam or some way for them to draw in customers because, and to, to, to verify this, right? I went into Tiny Tim's the other day and I said to them, do you mind if we do some filming upstairs at some point? And we had a chat about it and it was fine. And I explained to them why the manager said, do you want to go upstairs and have a look and see? So you can see where you can do your filming and whatever. And I was like, yeah, fine. So I went upstairs, went into the room. On the door of the room, it says, 
Behind this door lies the room in which the spirits of the ghosts of Tiny Tim's were first awakened. Please take care not to disturb them while they're sleeping, right? So I went in, I was bopping around this room and I will say the room, for some reason, I don't know if it's because I know the story, it is just freaky, right? And I went in in the middle of the afternoon when Tiny Tim's was really busy. It is a freaky room. It definitely feels colder than the rest of the building. And I'm not, I don't take heed of any of that when people are like whoa do you feel that cold spot i know it happens sometimes but i think sometimes it's also very exaggerated it is colder than the rest of the building also the floor is completely crooked so it makes you feel really disoriented like really disoriented and they have pictures all around of like when it uh when the fire happened when it was renovated etc etc what they do have is different cupboards in the walls so they have they kept one of the panels out and put a cupboard in its place so you can see what behind the panels looks like where they found the inscriptions where they found little memorabilia belonging to the alleged dead children that were found there whatever there's also a full length cupboard and i was bopping around i opened threw open the cupboard nearly shit myself because in the cupboard they've hung a grim reaper <laughs> Obviously, for gobshites like me who are going around peeking into all the cupboards, I threw it open. I honestly, it took everything in my power not to scream out loud, nearly shit myself face with this fucking Grim Reaper. I'll put all the pictures up on uh, on social media. But while I was up there, a woman walked in behind me and she was like, oh, I never knew this room was here before. And I was like, yeah. And she was like, this is really weird. What is this? And I was like, oh, it's it's the ghost room. And she was like, I've been coming here every day with she was a carer and she was coming there every day with her client she was like since this place reopened and before lockdown i was coming here every day with my client i never ever knew this room was here so i was like oh it really they don't really don't advertise it as a thing but anyway so it is a very freaky little room i will say it's disturbing but the building is incredibly old and i don't think it is remotely surprising that they would find artifacts of children that had died there because so many generations lived in those buildings I think this is probably going to shock you because I'm about to take a really sceptical approach on on something. Whoa. (laughs) Uh, Having lived in a building of similar age, it's not quite as old, but not far off for most of my uni days, I can confirm that it doesn't matter how you heat your house or how many extra heaters you put in places, there are certain areas of old buildings that are always cold. And I feel like part of the atmosphere you get in this room is the combination of the fact that it's just impossible to heat and the floor is wonky. Now, obviously, I'm not a ma- I am not a skeptic on it being haunted at all. In fact, I'm 100% on board with that. I'm just saying in terms of that particular feeling that you get when you're in there, I think that is scientific rather than paranormal. I probably agree with you because it's a very foreboding atmosphere. When you go into these really old buildings in Canterbury, like the staircases are always really winding, they're rickety. You're going in, it's got all of the dark wooden beams. In this room, it's just got an armchair in the middle of it and nothing else. It's very, very, very weird. I don't know if they've done that purposefully to add to the atmosphere. Definitely, if you're listening, Tiny Tim's people, you need to replace the armchair with a rocking chair. Way more likely to move. (laughs) Or uh, a rocking horse. You know, that is, that's even better. If you can get a vintage rocking horse in there, that's even better. Uh, But yeah, I just, it's, it is a very freaky room. And I think you're right. It's definitely colder, but the floor is also really wonky. So it's very disorienting, like disorientating. I don't know what that word is, but it's, it's, it's kind of a weird feeling when you go in there. If you are 
in the Canterbury area, like go, you don't you don't have to buy anything. Like go into Tiny Tim's and go upstairs to the ghost room. Like it's you can just go into it. You know what I mean? Although if you are partial to tea and scones, they are banging, as I said earlier. <laughs> so do do that. I'm going to be really unprofessional. I'm going to ask you a question. You said allegedly about the children being dead. They did actually find bodies in there, right? You're not about to do a big reveal and say, actually, this is all rubbish. No, I'm not about to do that. But I don't know where those bodies are. I can't find any evidence as to where they were taken to or who did the investigations on the bodies when they were found. So the the Chinese restaurant that did exist there and was burnt down, there was a whole weird backstory behind that that, again, I couldn't verify. And I was a bit like, I don't know if that's true, but allegedly the owner of the restaurant also died in that fire. And it was only then, obviously, that they found the bodies. And apparently nothing happened in that building until those bodies and those artifacts were removed. But I don't know where they are now. So I can't, I can't verify. Like, you know, the way usually with stories like that, you would say the bodies were removed and they're now on display in you know, some museum or the artifacts are on display in, in some museum or some... Because well, they've been reinterred. Like, that yeah, yeah. often happens when they discover bodies in places they shouldn't be. They get reburied somewhere, don't they? But these bodies in particular, if they were buried or if they were mummified, but they were wrapped in shrouds with the last... Like, used to call it the last stitch, which was a stitch to the nostril. It was an old navel thing. Again, that seemed to be more mythological... There is some evidence that sailors did it, but not really in that time period. So I'm confused about that one, about that part of the story too. And I did wonder, like, were there elements of the story added on to add that kind of medieval feel to it? I don't really know. Um, And especially if you've got had three mummified bodies of children who had died of cholera and who were uh, shrouded in a seafaring way. Like, that is a really interesting discovery and probably more would have been done with it so i don't know i I don't know how much of this story is 100 percent fact it was there probably artifacts or maybe remains found absolutely apparently there were remains of mummified dogs and cats found in the walls which actually was very common in the medieval period they used to horrifically put cats and dogs in the walls to ward off evil spirits um, and that was a very common practice. So that one, I wouldn't even question. I thought you were going to say it's really common for them to crawl in behind the walls and get stuck and die. That's why I thought you were going with it. <laughs> no, no, genuinely, yeah. it, it was a medieval practice. Cats in particular, you would, I don't know, I'm not, I, I don't know enough about it, but I don't know if they put them in alive, which is horrendous. But, you know, in in older times, people did weird shit. But definitely, it was a regular thing to find the mummified remains of cats in the walls of houses and horses as well which we talked about in Sharon Rectory the bodies of animals would be put in with the foundations and a part of that is about warding off evil spirits my brother was working on a house recently and found the mummified bodies of two cats in the walls and uh, he was like yeah that's weird and I was like I just didn't say anything because <laughs> he's he would just be like what <laughs> so I just was like yeah that is weird very very strange very strange indeed the activity here is um is creepy particularly the voices that John heard done in that very special way that you did them <laughs> thanks for that you're welcome <laughs> I feel like I've seen evidence of this somewhere in that room was I in the past life no, I don't know <laughs> What do you mean? You've seen pictures of it? Yeah, they do have pictures of the room as it used to be, but they have no they have no pictures of the bodies. Mm. Or not that they'd be like, you know what I mean? They have no pictures of like even the little Hessian sacks that apparently were found. So they don't have any of that. But then you'd wonder how much of that would have been photographed 
in the actual building itself like maybe if it was taken away for carbon dating or whatever they would have photographed it but not probably not inside the building i feel like also it was probably at a time where it wasn't like everybody didn't have a camera on them did they do you know what i mean yeah, it was in, yeah in the 1980s go, you'd have to go and get your camera as opposed to pull something out of your pocket and snap something so it would have been much more difficult to take a photo in the instance yeah it's definitely got vibes i'll give you that I guess there's so many places, like you said, in Canterbury that will have similar stories because the buildings haven't been renovated in any kind of meaningful way in since pretty much since their creation. You know, and that's pretty that's pretty spectacular, even from a historical perspective. Like, it's really interesting. So what are your thoughts on the other story about number 34, number 36, whichever building it was? The floating mirror story. Yes. Well, first of all, I'm you know, I feel like I'm I'm a flogging a dead horse for want of a better term here, but again, just don't touch Ouija boards. It's really not it's not worth your time. It doesn't matter how drunk you are and how good of an idea it seems, it's not. You might just end up with a floating ghost lady holding a mirror over your face. But have you never been really drunk and had a bad idea? Not involved in a Ouija board. But you have been really drunk and had a bad idea. I regularly have bad ideas when I'm really drunk. (laughs) So, you know, it happens. So I'm not going to condemn them for that because these things happen. That story blows my mind. Because presumably he was was admitted to hospital, wasn't he? So there was records for that and... He went to our local hospital first and then ended up having to go to a, a specialist hospital to get... I think he had to get like some sort of specialist work done on his face. Like not plastic surgery, but you know, like plastic surgery i can't think of a better way to put it but yeah that, that the two hospitals were named in the story well, often like when there's mass amounts of glass coming in contact with the skin and body you often have to have them surgically removed anyway so it's a big it could be a piece big piece of work without plastic surgery just getting stuff out yeah definitely how much are you gonna how much truth is there to the to the historical aspect of abigail and her husband newspaper records wow okay, yeah cool so all of these stories have come have been sourced from the cathedral archives which obviously I can't access because I can't go to the cathedral. So you can go to the cathedral and access their archives and spend quite a lot of time, you know, going through them and whatever. Um, I don't know. I didn't check if they're online, actually, but they might be. But this story was in the local newspapers at the time because he was a local pub landlord, which obviously would have been somebody who was well known in the community. And his behaviour towards his wife was apparently really well known as well. And that is the story of of Abigail and then you know it was after the story so after poor David had his mirror incident then they went and checked the archives and they found the story of Abigail who was 27 years old when she died and that had that building had used to be a pub called the Crown Inn. I think actually the fear of seeing myself when I woke up would probably be enough to knock me out I'd probably just faint from that I don't think I'd see what happened I'd just wake up in pain the following morning with the mirror smashed on me and not understand anything of what's happened because I'd see myself and I would instantly faint, I think. Because you don't expect... That's the last thing you expect to see, isn't it? Literally the last thing you'd <laughs> expect to see yourself looking back at you. Yeah. What do you even do with that? Like, and how long would it take you to figure out that that is... Oh, shit, it's a mirror. Because I think it would take me far too long for the for to figure it out than the ghost would be willing to to be there holding a mirror. I think she would get to a point where she'd be like, is she ever going to figure this out? Like when do I, I wouldn't, I need her to figure out before I can throw it for a dramatic effect. You know, she's never going to figure this out. That would be me. I also feel like this story way adds even more evidence and weight to the fact that I just don't like mirrors. 
It's another creepy mirror story, isn't it? Not not the creepy mirror story that you'd expect. <laughs> Absolutely not. Because, you know, we usually see like little little shadows in mirrors or whatever. No, now you've got a ghost fucking flinging a mirror at you. Just just because. I think that, that building now is still flats. So I'd love to go up and see. Is it also more... Oh, sorry, this has just occurred to me. Is it also more evidence that ghosts can kill you as well, right? Yeah, sorry, babe. Oh, no. you got to be watching your back, not only from the living, <laughs> but from the dead. I feel like as well with that particular building that there was some sort of damage done to the building during a storm and they found something in the wall. That's And that is just from my weird knowledge of like various bits of Canterbury. I have this weird feeling that in that particular flat damage was done to the wall and they found something in it. Very odd, but I think it was something freaky and something... Yeah, I can't really remember, but I'll need to look it up and find... See if I can find the rest of the story. Setting yourself up for a sequel. That's what I'm doing. Part <laughs> two. Well, I mean, with Canterbury, you could do up to part bloody 50, because there's so many ghost stories around Canterbury. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find everything you need to know about us on reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. You can send your own spooky story to reallifeghoststoriespodcast.gmail.com. You can support us on Patreon. That is patreon.com forward slash reallifeghoststories, where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra content. And on that note, we shall see you next week. Bye.